0: Okay, so uh, I'm David Tuckett, and I'm going to be the chair of this event. And we're going to have the privilege of listening to Mark Soames. Since you've got a uh, uh, list of his achievements on this piece of paper, I'm not going to repeat it or take up his time and your time listening and asking him questions. Apart from to say that the one thing I can assure you that is something to look forward to, he's an extremely good and interesting speaker. So, Mark.
1: I must just find this button Can, uh, Am I mic'd am up? So, uh, thank you, David um, I began, uh, after qualifying here in London as an analyst I began to try to reconcile what I'd learnt in my analytical training with what I'd learned before that in my, my uh, pr- previous um, incarnation as a neuroscientist. And it seemed like a sort of an obvious thing to do to try to bring together what we're learning now um, about brain mechanisms of mental life with what we learned um, in the century before about the um, same thing from the point of view of being the mind, the, the subjective experience of, of the mind. And uh, as I did that, you know, trying to m- map our basic discoveries uh, in psychoanalysis, the basic concepts that we were led to, um, onto the, the anatomy and physiology of the brain, uh, so it was inevitable that at some point the, they wouldn't fit. Um, it's not that I was trying to find, um, trying to squeeze Freud into the brain, um, and nor was I trying to find where Freud was wrong. It was, as I said, just an obvious thing to do. Since we now have the tools to be able to um, literally visualize the the mechanisms that we'd inferred from psychological experience, um, it it, it was just a matter of finishing the job. But in the process of doing that, as I say, it was inevitable that at some point the two perspectives would not gel with each other. And uh, it came as something of a shock to me when when I realized how very badly um, the, the the two um, perspectives contradicted each other. Um, that was in that was about five five years ago, and uh, I said it came as a shock to me because it really wasn't welcome. You know, I'm a I'm a psychoanalyst. I'm a Freudian. Uh, I, it doesn't give me any pleasure at all to find that Freud made an absolutely fundamental mistake. Uh, but that's what I'm going to uh, try to persuade you of today. And here's my punchline. There's no mystery as to what the mistake is. (laughs) Um, Probably bad narrative technique (laughs) to to tell you that already. But uh, I I have, over the last five years, not, not only gradually reconciled myself to the realization that Freud made this mistake, but also I've been thinking through the implications of how it seems to me the thing really works as opposed to how Freud thought it worked. And um, I've also been um, combing through the implications as a practicing analyst because that's uh, alongside my, 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 my neurological work. I am, I am also still um, in analytical practice. And I found that over these five years, actually there are some ways in which things are much simpler and much clearer. Um, as a result of, of, of the rec- the realization that, that Freud was wrong uh, when he claimed that the id was unconscious so what I'm going to do is start out uh, just sort of setting out the, actually I was going to say setting out the stall of the argument but really I'm going to be doing it in a kind of a chronological way, this is, this is how it became apparent to me in this sequence that I'm going to describe it to you um, that there was something wrong with Freud's basic model. And then, um, time permitting, I'll talk about some of the implications um, of the correction of Freud's views, some of the implications for psychoanalytical uh, clinical work. But I will obviously, in the time available, only be able to sketch the basic um, terrain that we that I I believe we have to move into. I I won't be able to dot I's and cross T's. So those are introductory remarks. Now, this is the brain Um, in technicolor. And um, I'm going to start by telling you something which might not seem as if it's particularly related to psychoanalysis, so just bear with me. Those were introductory comments. This is Chapter 2. Chapter 3 is how it links to Freud. Um, so, this chapter 2 has to do with how the body is represented in the brain. Um, the, the, the body is represented in two completely different ways in the brain. And uh, it's that that I'm going to outline to you now. You probably all know about the cortical homunculus, which is uh, the... The uh, homunculus is the little man, well, and nowadays I suppose we should say the little person in the head, uh, whose, whose face is down here. Uh, hand is over here, uh, torso over there, genitals right at the top, and uh, the legs hang over the other side. Um, it's facing backwards: face, hand, uh, you know, body, legs. And all of us, let's not forget, this is not a theory. You know, this is all of you have this little person mapped onto your brain right now as you're sitting there. the left side of your body uh, mapped onto—I uh, mean, the right side of your body mapped onto the left side of your cortex, and, and vice versa. Um, that's, a, that's a sensory map, somatosensory map, uh, uh, crudely called the sense of touch. It's not only touch. Here's a motor map. Same thing again, another little person, upside down, uh, 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 representing um, and controlling the, 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 the musculoskeletal body. And then there are other maps for the other sensory modalities. Um, over here is a map of your retina. A map of the back of your eye projected onto the back of your cortex. Uh, Here's the equivalent for the sense of hearing. Inside this uh, crevice uh, is uh, uh, the equivalent for uh, smell and for taste. So, this is how the body is represented on the cortex. And the important thing to uh, emphasize is that it is the sensory, the perceptual sensory modalities, the classical senses. Touch, smell, hearing, uh, uh, um, um, taste, and um, the other thing, whichever one I left out, plus plus movement over here. So these are literally maps in the sense that there's a point-by-point projection of the body onto the surface of the cortex. And um, it's not only the surface of the cortex... Uh, that we're talking about, it's also the surface of the body because these sensory receptor organs are all on the outside of your bodies for obvious reasons because their function is to register the state of the outside world. Uh, Let let me just put this, it, it, it might sound a little esoteric the way I'm putting it but it's important for how the argument unfolds. How we come to know the state of the outside world is by dint of the impression that it makes on these sensory receptor organs. So we actually know the outside world by knowing something about the, the surface of our bodies, what the world's doing to these highly specialized parts of the external uh, the surface of the body. So that's the first way in which the body is represented in the brain. By the way, what I'm telling you now is absolutely old news. I mean, this we've known for a century. It's nothing new about it. More interesting is this part which is the second way in which the body is represented in the brain. Um, the, these red things, oh, I know I'm not pointing on those screens, um, but, you know, you get it. These, these little red structures um, are structures in the brain stem. This is the brain stem over here. That's the cortex. So the cortex is the thing that fills out the cranium. Um, you know, that's the part we're proud of. But down here, you have this brain stem, which connects to the spinal cord, It's a much, much more lowly structure, a much more ancient structure. It's a structure that we share with really very lowly animals. There's there's nothing specifically human about this. And embedded within the brainstem are these red structures. I won't name them. Perhaps this is the most important one. It's called the hypothalamus. Um, And what they do is they receive information about the state of the body in in, in the interior of the body, the visceral body, the, the internal milieu of the body. Uh, registering the state of your vital needs, so monitoring, uh, for example, your core body temperature, monitoring your hydration, monitor, monitoring your uh, how much salt you have, how much sugar you have, uh, and so on. All of these things—the um, the, 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 the temperature, the water, the sugar, the salt, etc.—are absolutely vital to life. And there's a very narrow range within which uh, you have to remain if you're going to remain alive. So, you know, thank heavens for these brain structures. They're constantly monitoring how you're doing um, in terms of these these vital parameters. Um, These red structures, in turn, project to these purple structures. Uh, The purple structures are called, very broadly, called the reticular activating system. And what the the reticular activating system does is activates the forebrain, uh, in relation to the state of these vital needs, and it's obvious why. You know, if you're moving out of the necessary range uh, compatible with life in regard to any one of these uh, basic uh, vital uh, parameters, the only way you can rectify it is to do something in the outside world. You know, if you're hungry, uh, if you need a certain uh, a, a certain sort of uh, a, a metabolic ingredient, you can't sort of say, <clears throat> "Okay, there it is. Now I've got you know the sugar." Um, You have to go out and get it. And incidentally, not to be too philosophical about it, that's why life's difficult. (laughs) Um, Incidentally, it's not only the vital needs in terms of survival of the body that I'm referring to, but also reproductive uh, function. So in terms of our species, if you're going to keep the species going, um, which the basic design of this thing is, uh, the the main aim is keep the species going, that's, that's the evolutionary biological sort of imperative that leads to the design of all um, living um, uh, organisms, uh, then you have to go out and copulate. Um, no amount of sexual fantasizing and masturbating is going to reproduce the species. And so uh, there, too, life is difficult. There are, there are needs uh, in, the, in the evolutionary biological sense, sexual needs, reproductive needs, which impact on these structures, which then in turn activate these structures, which get the forebrain, the, for the, the, the part of the brain that controls the external body, and says, okay, you know, go out there and multiply. Um, so that's the basic sort of design of this system. Uh, these white arrows—I'll tell you a little bit more about them uh, in a moment. Well, in fact, let me tell—no, uh, let me start with the purple ones. So these purple structures, again, this is everything I've told you is not new. This is uh, old, old news. Uh, it, the interesting thing is when these structures were first discovered in the 1950s, it was by mistake, by accident, not by mistake so much as by a surprise. Um, the, these external cortical um, structures that I spoke of first, um, the, the, the s- somatic sensation or, or, or so-called touch and movement and hearing and vision and so on, these were thought to be the sources of our consciousness. And if you think about your own common sense experience, it's evident that this is the source of your consciousness. You close your eyes, you know, you no longer have visual consciousness. Block your ears, you know. Same thing, stick your fingers up your nose. You, know, you, you, you no longer receive that quality of consciousness that we call smell or hearing or vision. Mm. And uh, since ancient times, no doubt, um, s- certainly since human, Locke started sort of formalizing these things, the, the, the general common sense view was consciousness derives from our senses and that there are five sort of varieties of consciousness, and this we call the contents of consciousness. No mystery there. The surprise was... In the 50s, when these structures were discovered, the purple ones, the reticular activating system, um, it was uh, discovered that these structures, in fact, are the source of our consciousness. Consciousness is an endogenous property of the brain. It's, It's generated by the brain itself, and it's generated here, deep, right in the core of the brain, in structures that we share with all vertebrates. So these are structures that are 525 million years old. And uh, there's nothing especially human at all about them. Um, the, the, the chaps who discovered these structures, Magoon and Maruzzi, uh, they showed that you could remove the whole of the cortex. You could remove all of the sensory inputs um, from these five classical modalities which supposedly give rise to the contents of our consciousness. Uh, they didn't do this in, in people. Of course, they did it in other animals and it's questionable whether that should ever have been done, but it was. This was the 1950s, and they did it mainly in cats. Um, and they showed that cats with no cortex, with no sensory inputs to cortex, uh, therefore presumably on the old theory with no possibility of, of of consciousness, that the cats remained very much conscious. In fact, they seemed pretty agitated uh, to have no cortex, and uh, they seemed quite... <laughs> you know emotional um, in fact very emotional um, ab- ab- about their new found state uh, of deaf dumb blind uh, paralyzedness uh, but they they were there um, and how do you determine a thing like that well um, for one thing um, you look at the sleep wake cycle which is something that you can do whether you're able to move or not you know and these cats carried on waking up in the morning and going to sleep at night with a few naps in between And uh, everything about, you know, this consciousness, becoming conscious and going and losing consciousness um, as regards uh, sleep and waking, but also as regards uh, coma. You know, if you damage these structures, as Magoon and Maruzzi did in those poor cats, they went into a coma. If you temporarily uh, ablate those structures, the cat goes temporarily into a coma. So it seemed as if, uh, unlike what was expected, that consciousness derives from our external sensory modalities, actually consciousness derives from within, from the core of this, this ancient brainstem structure. Um, so in order to get out of the... The dilemma that they now f- uh, faced, because by the way, this is how science really works, uh, as David knows. We're well, supposedly, you know, when you, when your predictions are not confirmed, you know, you throw away your theory giving rise to those predictions and you come up with a new theory. But that's not how it really works. What you do is you fudge things and try and somehow sque- <laughs> squeeze the new findings into your old theory. And so what Magoon and Maruzzi said was, the old view that the contents of consciousness derive from uh, our sensory organs and, and are registered in cortex, that view stands. Now we have to, uh, we call that the contents of consciousness. Now we have to invent a new thing called the level of consciousness. Uh, so it's not, this has not got to do with, with the qualities of consciousness, vision, hearing, smell, taste, etc., but rather with how much consciousness in, in a quantitative sense. It's a kind of turning up the volume. And so this aspect of consciousness is the aspect that, uh, for example, anaesthetists concern themselves with. You know, uh, uh, level in the sense of, of, of wake, sleep and wakefulness and coma and stupor and so on. Uh, so th- that was the distinction. Quality versus quantity, contents versus level. And uh, the, the, in this way, this absolutely shocking and totally unexpected finding was uh, um, neutralized and we carried on thinking that things were as we always thought they were. Now, uh, in more recent times, by which I mean the 1990s, it started to become apparent that these purple structures, which supposedly give rise only to quantities of consciousness, um, that they are, in fact, anything but um, uh, uh, purely quantitative. Um, I said that this is the aspect of consciousness that anesthetists are interested in, but it turns out this is also the aspect of consciousness that psychiatrists are interested in. So, for example, just to mention, two, um, the dorsal raphe nucleus here, um, this is what uh, Prozac acts on. Um, and the ventral tegmental area here, this is what antipsychotics act on. So, you know, antidepressants, antipsychotics, basic um, kind of tools of the trade of psychopharmacology, that is to say of a pharmacological regulation of mood and emotion and, and affect, the kind of core qualities um, of, 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 of human experience, they're manipulated by um, uh, 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 manipulating the activity of these so-called quantitative consciousness-generating structures. It's perhaps best illustrated the point I'm making by talking to you about just this little structure that I'm circling here. It's called the periaqueductal gray, or PAG. It's the size of a jelly bean. And remember again, this is not a theory. Each one of you has one of these in your head right now. That's why you're conscious. Uh, this structure in particular is why you're conscious, because despite its size, if that part of your brain is damaged, you will lose all consciousness. It's an absolute rule. In fact, this is the smallest area of brain tissue which, when damaged, uh, leads to a total obliteration of consciousness. So it's quite sobering to remember or realize that, you know, your entire being in the world, um, here and now, is dependent upon the integrity of this little jelly bean in your, in your ancient brainstem. So this uh, keeps you awake, um, and it's this uh, quantitative consciousness-generating structure, as I say, the most concentrated form of it that there is. And when you stimulate this structure... You might expect then that the volume will be turned up or down. But in fact, how it works is if you stimulate the back part of the structure, the dorsal PAG, in any creature, but humans can speak and they'll tell you what it feels like, it is absolutely dreadful, excruciating, horrific. So it's not just the lights go on, I'm awake. It's I am in dreadful pain and anxiety and horror and terror, and I just want to get this bloody thing switched off immediately. And uh, with animals, you know, they will do anything to to get that st- the, the stimulator uh, switched off. Um, it's it's horrific. Uh, conversely, stimulating the ventral PAG, the front part of it, uh, rather than screaming and shouting and 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 and, and freezing and fleeing and sc- uh, running up the walls, uh, what the animal does is something like this:
2: oh, hmm, ooh.
1: Do it some more. It's and they they crave the stimulation of the ventral PAG because it is literally orgasmically beautifully, you know, idyllic. It's wonderful, the most intense, pure pleasure imaginable. And human beings who have that structure stimulated will tell you that that's what it feels like. In animals, it certainly looks as if uh, they're feeling what we feel. So the PAG, the most concentrated, quantitative. Conscious level of consciousness generating structure that there is certainly is not without quality. The the qualities uh, of pleasure and unpleasure uh, are just that. They, they 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 can't be described in non uh, in uh, as, as something that doesn't have content. So the fudge from the 50s was revealed to be mistaken. Um, and in in the process, incidentally, and psychoanalysts might take particular pleasure from this. If you'll excuse the pun that um, the contents of consciousness until then, you know, we'd left out affect, we'd left out the fact that you know, consciousness is not made up only of vision, hearing, smell, touch, and taste, you know, they are emotional feelings, and uh, this is part of the content of our consciousness. How could we have not noticed this for a hundred years? Uh, but th- that's cognitive neuroscience for you, and um. The, the the important distinction between affect, and uh, as this as this uh, uh, one of the uh, the sixth sense, if you will, uh, the sixth quality of, of of the contents of consciousness, is that unlike vision and hearing, etc., which register the state of the outside world as as uh, I said earlier, as as picked up by the sensory receptor surfaces uh, on, on on the exterior of the body, affect registers the state. Of the, the internal state of the body of the subject, the affect is how does it feel to me? So it's about the state of me rather than the state of the outside world. It's true that something exter- external may trigger an affect, um, you know, so that you you feel frightened of something out there. But the the fear doesn't come from without. The fear is your response from within. And um, so I to check on time. So it's ten past ten. Is that right? I started at quarter two. Is that right?
0: 10:45, yes.
1: 10, 10, 10, 10. I think.
0: 1045.
1: Yeah. Okay. I must just because you know this, uh, I can easily get carried away with all the details. So I must move along. The the um, the affect registers the state of the of the subject of me, and the 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 external senses register the state of the outside world. Now um, there are two things I must say that we've learned about these purple structures which generate these affects. The one is, as I've said already, that they generate them; that that these structures are activated by these body, these internal body regulating structures. So it's how am I doing in terms of sugar, salt, uh, sex hormones, and whatnot, and that in turn activates these structures, which activate the forebrain to do things in the outside world. But the the whole thing is mediated by affect, and this led to the realization: well, this is probably what affect is for. So things feel good. If they're good for your survival and reproductive success, and they feel bad uh, if, uh, conversely, you know you're likely to cop it and and and, and not uh, uh, get any sex uh, if you do that sort of stuff. So the the, the sexual and survival um, uh, activities are imbued with pleasure in order to encourage us to do them. And uh, the 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 other, you know, like, what is it, going o- o- over a cliff face and, you know, sort of thinking, I wonder what will happen if I jump off there. You, you, do, you know, you don't uh, want to try that out. You just feel this is bad, and so this is how you stay alive so that ultimately you can reproduce. This is the design of the thing, and that, what I've just said now, is a theory. So everything I've said until now is a fact. It's a theory that... Affect arose in order for us to be able to feel our way through situations. Is this good? Is this bad? And it has to do with monitoring the state of the the visceral body in terms of survival and reproductive parameters. Um, So that's theory, as I say. Now we come back to fact. The fact is that these structures do generate consciousness. uh, They do generate affective consciousness. And they do switch on the whole of the upper uh, brain. And that's a very important point, and I need to emphasize this, so I'm just going to repeat it. Although it's true that all the, that the cortex registers all the external perceptual modalities of consciousness, and the brainstem registers the internal affective state of consciousness, there is a hierarchical relationship between the two. So that you can remove, as I said it with the cats, you can remove all of the cortex, and you're removing these external perceptual uh, modalities, But the core affective being, the the presence of a conscious state, is still there. But the same doesn't apply the other way around. If you remove just PAG, all of the lights go out. So the affective, to put it uh, uh, absolutely clearly, the affective state, pleasure, unpleasure, is the bedrock of consciousness. That first and foremost there is a sentient being that feels like something. And then secondarily, that feeling state gets extended onto our external perceptual surface. And if you think about it, that makes a kind of sense. So, you know, I feel like this. This is good. This is bad. And then it's not a, it's not a, a silly idea to say, well, what is it that's making me feel good or bad? And so the consciousness, the quality gets extended upwards onto the external perceptual um, uh, apparatus. That's how it works. Is that clear? Um, it 's also how it works. the hierarchy i 'm referring to is also an evolutionary hierarchy. This, these structures are more ancient, so we share these structures with fishes and you know um, uh, snakes and lizards and tortoises there 's a really really basic stuff it 's just feels good, feels bad uh, and then as we as we develop all these higher cortical structures, so we are able to extend the feelings onto representations of the outside world, and what's more, not only onto representations of how the world is now, but onto learned representations. So we build, we have an internalized model of the the outside world in relation to our affective states, and then we can hold these images, these maps uh, derived from the outside world, we can hold them in mind while we feel our way through the world and feel our way through all the problems that, as I said... um, (coughs) arise from the fact that life is difficult. I will just mention in passing, if I had more time I would tell you more about it, but these white arrows refer to certain inbuilt relationships between <coughs> affect and outside world. These are instinctual mechanisms, certain things that you can't afford to learn, they're just built into your brain, learnt as it were by evolution, that to those of our ancestors who tried to, to see what happens if you jump off a cliff, of course they learnt, what happens, but it was the last thing they learnt, and uh, they didn't survive and they didn't reproduce, and so that inclination was selected out. And those of our ancestors who thought that that doesn't feel nice, um, and avoided exploring what happens when you jump off cliffs, uh, they survived, they reproduced, and so the fear mechanism um, for fear of heights got built into our brain. So these are sort of basic instincts. It's very in, in, important for psychoanalysts to know something about what these basic instincts are. But I'll skip over it for now, I mean for today. So pause, I want to just reiterate the basics that consciousness in fact is brainstem endogenously generated. It has to do with structures which derive from the monitoring of the internal milieu of the body and then activating the forebrain in terms of a basic qualitative uh, distinction between feeling good and feeling bad, pleasurable feelings, unpleasurable feelings, which then direct what you do in relation to these representations of the outside world, which are learnt. And um, the, the, these instinctual structures uh, give rise to qualities of pleasure and unpleasure, which we don't have time to go into. So it's not just feel good, feel bad. There's also particular types of pleasure uh, and particular types of unpleasure which are built into our brains, um, like fear. And rage and, and, and attachment, and so on. Um, last point is that everything that we've learned since the 1980s about the cortex's um, gymnastics, you know, all of this incredible, uh, this what I told you about learning about the outside world through these representations of the outside world, all of it, not just the perception. Uh, but also the memories derived from those perceptions and also the cognitive processes that are performed on those representations, thinking. All of that does not require consciousness. This is the sort of great discovery of cognitive neuroscience in the 80s was that, wow, cognition doesn't require consciousness. You can do all of that stuff. You can read. You can Perform calculations. You can make, um, you know, uh, uh, as I say, all of these cognitive gymnastics. You can recognise faces, uh, etc., without even knowing that you've seen a face. So cog- cognition does not require consciousness. These representations are not intrinsically conscious. It was exactly so. It's exactly the opposite of what we had originally thought. Consciousness is derived. It's secondarily derived from these brain stem structures, and it has to do with affect, and it has to do with an imbuing. ...of these cognitive um, uh, uh, mechanics with quality, and the quality derives from within. The quality, that, that, that the felt, conscious qualities come from within. Okay, so that's it. That's neuroscience. Now we move on. This is Sigmund Freud. I, 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 this, as you might have noticed, this uh, the date is 2015, and um, that's when Freud wrote his paper on the unconscious. It's not there that he made his mistake, It's 1923, Uh, so maybe we'll have to have another conference in in, uh, eight years' time. This is from the famous The Ego and the Id. And here Freud says, um, sorry, let me just tell you, I'm now going to show you that Freud said the same thing as I've done. This is chapter three. So, chapter one was introduction, chapter two was how the body is represented in the brain in these two different ways. Now, chapter three. Now, I'm going to show you that Freud, too, thought that the body was represented in what he called the mental apparatus, uh, the mind. The body is represented in two different ways. So Freud said the same thing. Here it comes. He says, the ego is first and foremost a bodily ego. It's not merely a surface entity, but is itself the projection of a surface. If we wish to find an anatomical analogy for it, we can best identify it with the cortical amunculus of the anatomists, which stands on its head in the cortex, sticks up its heels, faces backwards, and as we know, has its speech area on the left-hand side. So, you recognize the thing I've just told you about. Here's Freud saying the same thing, except he's saying that the ego is derived from the surface. That is to say, the ego is derived from perceptual consciousness. Uh, from the ext- and he says, uh, in, uh, here is a little footnote. And here's the footnote, he says, that is, the ego is ultimately derived from bodily sensations, chiefly from those springing from the surface of the body. It may thus be regarded as a mental projection of the surface of the body. Besides, as we have seen above, representing the superficies of the mental apparatus, what he means by the superficies of the mental apparatus, I'll come to later. You know, he drew a model of the of the mind, and he shows on its outer surface there's this conscious perceptual system which is registering the state of the outside world via the surface of the body. So, you know, this is not a complicated uh, uh, translation; it's a direct translation. Freud is saying the ego is derived from perceptual consciousness, and perceptual consciousness is the state of the surface of the body as projected onto the surface of the mind. Everything that I just told you from anatomy, and as Freud himself said, uh, it's the same as what the anatomists tell us. So there you have the external body mapped onto the surface of the ego. And then Freud tells us about the internal body, which is mapped in a different way. He says, the id, cut off from the external world, has a world of perception of its own. It detects with extraordinary acuteness certain changes in the interior, especially oscillations in the tension of its instinctual needs. And these changes become conscious as feelings in the pleasure-unpleasure series. It's hard to say to be sure by what means and with the help of what sensory terminal organs these perceptions come about, but it's an established fact that self-perceptions can aesthetically Feelings And feelings of pleasure and unpleasure govern the passage of events in the id with despotic force. The id obeys the inexorable pleasure principle. That's Freud. So he's saying what I've just said to you, what we've learned in recent decades in, 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 in neuroscience that there is a second representation of the body, uh, that this is the internal milieu of the body, it's the needs of the body, and these, uh, this aspect of the body is registered not in terms of maps and images, but rather in terms of feelings. And here Freud goes on. Uh, w- by the way, this, when he says it, it registers changes in the interior, especially oscillations in the tensions of its instinctual needs, the term in German that Freud uses here is not instinct, but drive, trieb. So just to clarify what a tribe is, what Freud means by what Strachey calls an instinct, he says, a tribe, an instinct, appears to us as a concept on the frontier between the mental and the somatic, as the psychical representative of the stimuli originating from within the organism and reaching the mind, as a measure of the demand made upon the mind for work in consequence of its connection with the body. So you see, it's the same thing as I was talking about earlier, need detectors, the part of the brain I described to you that registers the needs of the body, which make demands upon the mind to perform work because life's difficult, etc., etc., that's the second aspect. So Freud's model of the mind was tethered to the body at both ends, uh, and the, these two different ways in which the body is represented is exactly the way that I just described to you, that we now know the anatomical and physiological and, incidentally, a hell of a lot more. We know it's neurochemistry, and you know, all of this is jolly good. We can advance This basic model, which is not a small thing, you know, it's the the connection between my needs and how I meet them in the outside world is kind of like what the whole thing is about. You might have noticed. So, here we have it Freud's perceptual consciousness system over there is the same thing as we have over here, except here I'm showing you the, the, the medial surface, You know these projections of the external body, uh, that's the same up there. That's what Freud said, the superficies of the mental apparatus. And these need detectors, these, these red and activating systems down here in the brainstem, they are Freud's it, uh, registering the drives coming from the internal milieu of the body. Great, you know, I was very happy to, in, as I told you what I was trying to do, map the two fields, the, the, my two disciplines onto each other because I thought this is obviously a good thing to do. And then, uh, you know, then I spotted the mistake. Here's the mistake Freud says the id is unconscious. And in fact, the id, that is to say, the part of the mental apparatus that does the same work as this part of the brain. You know, it's clearly the same thing we're talking about. The part of the mental apparatus that registers the state of the body in terms of needs, that activates the whole thing, that feels, that generates pleasure and unpleasure, which then, you know, motivates you to get out into the world and do stuff. This is far from being unconscious. It's the very opposite. This is the font of consciousness. Uh, hierarchically speaking, as I told you, it's the foundation of all consciousness. Consciousness comes from within, consciousness comes from below, consciousness comes in the form of affect first and foremost, both um, uh, in terms of the structural hierarchy of the the mind, but also in terms of the evolution of consciousness. The dawn of consciousness was an affective consciousness, which then secondarily is extended upwards onto our representations of the outside world, which in themselves are intrinsically unconscious. So, there's Freud's mistake. Now, that's chapter 3. Now, chapter 4. In fact, once you realize this, and as I told you, it gave me no pleasure to realize this because it turned the whole thing on its head. I mean, let me just give you one quick implication of what I mean when I say it turns the whole thing on its head. Freud says that consciousness, which is attached to external representations, uh, is, is where our... Thing presentations, as he called them, you know, our representations of concrete objects in the world come from. This makes up the contents, the fabric of your ego, sort of your internalized model of the world, and word presentations. They also derive from hearing. You know, the, the, and, and Freud said that what's crucial about the fact that words derive also from external perception is that this is how you can make them conscious. Because they derive from external perception, they can become conscious. Freud thought this is what consciousness intrinsically is. And you need to then drag those words down into the unconscious in order to bring your id to consciousness. Where id was, there shall ego be. This is the aim of the talking cure. The whole talking cure works on the basis of an assumption that consciousness is up here, and you then need to drag it down there in order to be able to have these things uh, uh, available to consciousness. But in fact, it works the other way around. The consciousness starts down here, and it extends secondarily up to this intrinsically unconscious representational cognitive uh, <coughs> machinery above. So, you know, when I say that this is a mistake, uh, I, don't, <laughs> I don't want to just sort of have that as a throwaway line. I mean, it, when I say it turns things on its head, on, on its, Freud's model on its head, it really does. It sort of makes you think, well, then what the hell is the talking cure doing? You know, it's, uh, it, it can't be. It can't work like that. So this was the shock. As I say, I didn't welcome the realization that this is how it works. It must be how it works. It's obviously how it works. But as I got over that shock and started to think things through, first conceptually, and then I'm going to come to clinical things um, before I end. Uh, conceptually, the following sort of thing occurred to me. If I may just for a moment go back. Freud says here that the id cuts off from the external world, blah, blah, has a world of blah, 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 drives, pleasure, unpleasure, blah, blah, blah. And then he says, it's an established fact that self-perceptions, kinesthetic feelings and feelings of pleasure, unpleasure, feelings of pleasure, unpleasure, govern the passage of events in the id with despotic force. The id obeys the inexorable pleasure principle. How can you have a pleasure principle that you don't feel? You know, I mean, it just, you know, when you realize that the thing empirically doesn't make sense, then you realize actually logically and conceptually it also makes no sense. How can Freud say that the id obeys a pleasure principle, that is to say, feeling of pleasure, unpleasure principle, which governs things down there in the id, if it's unconscious? See, I mean, it's like. You know, it's, as I told you, I'm a Freudian, and you know, Freud was clever. But, jeez, what a mistake. You know, I mean, how can you... So the only way you can make sense of something as basic as the pleasure principle in Freud is to say, well, what Freud really meant, if you want to keep the old theory, what he really meant was, you know, that th- these things go up here, then they're felt as pleasure and unpleasure in the ego, and then it goes downwards again, and then it regulates things in the id. If the consciousness is up here, then first the things going on in the id have to go all the way through your mind, right up to the surface of the ego, to your thinking apparatus where you can think and feel things. And then you go downwards again and you regulate the passage of events in the id. In other words, the pleasure principle is a top-down regulatory principle, which is, again, another patent nonsense. The pleasure principle is a bottom-up regulatory principle, which is constrained by another principle called the reality principle. Um, So, remember, I'm only touching on headlines here. So, that was, you know, shock, horror, then hang on. Couldn't have been the way Freud said it was anyway. In terms of his own theory, it didn't work. So, this conceptual clarity brought to bear, and then you have to think through the implications of that, which we'll do in a few minutes. But I want to come to another such logical sort of thing. Freud said, affects are always conscious. This is something he said throughout his life, you know, that affect, feeling... He said it's an oxymoron to speak of an unconscious feeling. So he said, ideas can become unconscious, representations, cognition can become unconscious, but feelings by definition are felt. And uh, when he says, when we speak of, for example, an unconscious sense of guilt, what he means is you feel the guilt, you just don't know what it's about. You know. So the ideas that attach to the feeling are missing, but the feelings are there. Um, so that's the second logical point I wanted to point out. You know, that, that uh, Again, on, on Freud's own model, it has to work the way that I'm telling you uh, the neuroscience suggests it, it works. And um, thirdly, freud if you think about the, uh, Freud's theory of the unconscious, and now I am talking about the 1915 paper that we're celebrating uh, this year, um, in the unconscious, you know, Freud speaks of the core of the unconscious being these hallucinatory wish-fulfillments, uh, and they're built on early experiences of satisfaction. So you have these uh, early um, realistic or unrealistic experiences of satisfaction. And these become the core contents of the unconscious um, as they become repressed. And then over those we lay more and more realistic representations of how the world works until eventually we have pre-conscious and conscious representations. So now think about the core of the unconscious as Freud described it. It's derived from experience. It is representational. It has to do with experiences of satisfaction uh, which then become kind of models of what you're looking for and they become repressed. That is to say, hived off. So the core repressed contents of the unconscious can't be primary. The mind can't have started with an unconscious. This is the point I'm making. It starts, first you have to have experiences in the ego and then you have to hive off some of them and render them unconscious. Otherwise you can't speak of hallucinatory experiences. You can't have hallucinations without consciousness. So the core of the of the unconscious is a secondary product of of ego and pre conscious and conscious experience. Only then can you start building up an unconscious. So the unconscious is not the primordium of the mind, it's not the bedrock, it's not where it starts from. It's, it starts like this you have conscious feelings which then come into connection with the outside world. And so you start trying to feel your way through what you're learning about the external world, feeling what works, feeling what doesn't work. And then those things which uh, uh, – this is how you learn how to meet your needs in the outside world. So all of these representations of the outside world have to be rendered conscious secondarily so that you can feel your way through these problems. And then once you've solved the problems – this is what cognitive science teaches us. By the way, I'm moving on to Chapter 6, I think, now. (laughs) Um, The whole aim of learning, the whole aim of what the ego does, the whole aim of cognition, is to learn how to meet your needs in the outside world. Once you've learned how to meet your needs in the outside world, you don't need to think about it anymore. So this is a whole sort of problem-solving apparatus. And the problems, as Freud said, are the demands upon the mind to perform work. That is to say, the affects... The, 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 this feels bad. This is not working. You know, this feels good. Do more of that. That's how you know how you're doing. So it starts. The primordium, the core of the mind, is feeling. It starts with raw, unadulterated affective consciousness. This is the font of all mental um, uh, life. Then that consciousness uh, is um, is um, it sort of uh, saturates or sort of colours. Your your representational cognitive experience. This feels good. This feels bad. Do this. Don't do that. Until you finally find the happy medium. This is how it works. This is how I meet my needs in the world. Whoops. So now I don't need to worry about it anymore. This is what cognitive neuroscientists say. This is how the unconscious comes about. They call it the cognitive unconscious. And they don't want to hear about our unconscious, which I'm coming to. But this is how they say it works, and it makes jolly good sense. You know, that you have What you're trying to do is to remember these um, basic homeostatic need detector mechanisms. They have set points. I told you there's a range. This is too much. This is too little. This is uh, Goldilocks. And um, so you know, it feels bad uh, when you're moving away from the mean, uh, from the set point, and feels good when you're moving back to it. When you actually get to the set point, you feel nothing. Because feelings tell you, you know, how you're deviating, in which direction you're deviating from where you're aiming for. Once you've got the nothing, it's great. This is what, you know, what the whole design of the apparatus aims for, staying on the set point. The deviations and the feelings are predictions as to you know, where you're going um, in relation to uh, these vital needs upon which your survival and reproductive success depends. So likewise, at this level, you, you know, I told you we have these instincts which are kind of built-in ways of meeting your needs in the world, but they're very crude, rough-and-ready things. You have to learn. You know, The world is very unpredictable. These few little instincts are not going to cut it. You need to refine them in relation to the, all of the unpredictable complexities of the world, and you've got to feel your way through an endless variety of situations until you can automatize, you know, this is how I meet my needs in relation to this, that, and the other thing. And once you've learned how to meet your needs, you automatize your predictions. You, you, your cognition then becomes unconscious. Um, as I said, this is how cognition works. The aim of cognition is not to think about as much as you possibly can consciously. The aim is to think about only what you have to think about consciously until you've solved the problem. Then you can automatize it. But just... Maybe I'm speaking too abstractly. Let me just concretize it for a second. I live on a farm outside Cape Town where I work at a university. So the first time I went from my farm to the university, it was like, shit, how do I get there? You know, it's like, you know, trying to find my way to my university. Now I've done it for 15 years. I assure you, I don't register consciously the route. You know, they just do it. But if they change the route, then whoops. Now there's a problem, you know, and I've got to think my way through this new situation until I've automatized that. That's how it works. Just to clarify, in cognitive science, uh, the cognitive neuroscience, the view is, the absolutely unambiguous, universally accepted view is, consciousness, cognitive consciousness is a very small place, an extremely limited resource. Um, when we measure clinically uh, in, in neuropsychology whether a patient has a normal extent of working memory, that is to say the ability to hold consciously contents in mind, the the, the amount we expect is seven items of information. So that, that's, you know, that's how small your consciousness is. You can hold seven things in mind at once, and that's at a stretch. That's, by the way, why phone numbers are seven <laughs> digits long. Yeah. You know, you go beyond that as they tried. Uh, in the 90s, I think, yeah, I was living here then, and, you know, everybody like, chunked the thing back into the prefix because they wanted the numbers to be seven digits long. Um, so it's a very small place. It's a very precious resource. And uh, that's why uh, you, the, the, ten, the, the, the tendency is automatize as much as you can, as quickly as you can. Don't bother thinking about things that you've already solved because you need your thinking for all the other unpredictable, unexpected things that happen shit happens so there we have it now chapter i think 9 is the following what about the freudian unconscious our unconscious the dynamic unconscious and now this is me speaking i'm trying to put these things together this is what i propose i think that the oh, sorry i want you to just go back a step please note that what we're aiming for is zombiedom you know, <laughs> the ideal is you know i don't need to think consciously anymore so we're trying. Cognition, cognitive theory says, you know, the, the ideal is nirvana. Freud's nirvana principle. That's, you know, that's what we want. We want nothingness. Consciousness is a temporary state we tolerate, and we want to have ideas, plans, uh, predictions, cogn- cognitive uh, models that work, so that we don't have to have feelings. So this is how the ego regulates the id. This is how our thinking, our cognition. Uh, um, serves the the demands made by our bodies. And if they're doing it perfectly, there will be no feeling and there will be no consciousness, and that's the ideal. Very important in terms of what's conscious and what's unconscious. So the whole aim of the thing is the ego is trying to get the id into a state of unconsciousness. The id, in its own raw form, is anything but unconscious. So the unconsciousness comes from above. Uh, We're trying to dampen down consciousness with our thinking. So now we come to Freud. Um, I I propose that this is how repression works. It's not something radically different at all from what the cognitive scientists speak of this automatized solution. I think that because consciousness is such a small place, cognitive consciousness, because it's such a limited resource, there is no point in thinking about insoluble problems. And when you're little, you have endless insoluble problems. You know, so here you have this need, this affect. I wanna be big. Yeah. You know? I wanna be big like him. I want a job. I wanna drive a car. I'm four. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I wanna I wanna have a wife. I want her as my wife. You know? the, and I want babies. I don't wanna be the kid, I wanna be the parent, you know. So these are the needs, the feelings, you know, as we all recognise them. Uh, now are you, how are you going to solve that as a four year old How are you going to actually become big, make babies, drive cars, have a job, earn a salary, defeat your father, you know, marry your mother it's not going to happen So what you do is you say okay i 'm putting that out of my mind that, The way that I thought the, the, the solution i 've come to now, aged four, is automatized you know in other words i 'm treating as if. I've now got a prediction that works. Now I'm getting on with other things. And the difference, therefore, between the so-called dynamic unconscious, the the, the Freudian unconscious, and the so-called cognitive unconscious is not a matter of of, of which mechanism is used. It's the same mechanism, I think. The difference is whether it's being used legitimately or not. Have you really solved the problem? Because if you've really solved the problem, then the the solution is automatized. You have unconscious cognitive plan, and when the need comes, you just know what to do. Uh, If if it's illegitimate or premature, then the affect will remain, even though you won't know what the affect has to do with, because the cognition has been rendered unconscious. And the cognition, that is to say your way of meeting your needs in the world, won't work. There are what uh, Friston calls prediction errors, you know, which gives rise to free energies, like which is feelings, like shit. But the thing is, you don't know where the feelings come from. So, there certainly is a place in the mind called the unconscious. It's not in the id. It. It's higher up. It's derived from the ego. It's where we're actually aspiring to, uh, and the highest, um, as it were, achievements of cognition and learning and the ego is these automatized, unconscious uh, 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 stereotypes. But some of them are, are illegitimate. Some of them don't meet your needs in the world. They, they're, therefore, the affects are still there. The problems are still there. You just don't know what the affects are about. And it's all for good in a good cause so that you can actually think about things that you, know, you can solve. That, in very broad brushstrokes, is how I think it works. So, what does that tell us um, about, um, about um, psychoanalysis clinically? Well, first of all, I would make this semi facetious point. Our patients don't come to us and say, uh, Doctor, there's something I'm unconscious of. Can you please tell me what it is? You know, they say, Doctor, I'm feeling something. Can you please take it away? You know, so our Freud famously said, uh, hysterics suffer mainly from reminiscences. And I'd like to sort of paraphrase that and say, uh, neurotics suffer mainly from feelings. You know, our, our patients come to us with feelings. They don't know where they come from. They don't want them. They don't like them. And they want to get rid of them. And our job as psychoanalysts, is to marry the feelings with the ideas that give rise to them in other words to make the patient aware of what unconscious fantasy what representational uh, uh what way are they construing the world on the basis of an infantile model uh, which is frozen in time you no know, uh, bring that bring those thoughts back into working memory bring problematize those solutions again which is, which is not the tendency of the ego. Remember, it's going against the grain. The whole tendency of the ego is to render things unconscious. So, you know, against the esophageal flow, you've got to pull the thing up and you've got to say, well, think it again, feel it again, and then you rethink the thing. And I'm, I know I'm putting it in very simple terms, but I think that that is the aim of psychoanalysis. It's a temporarily re re automatized predictions, unconscious fantasies, as I say, making them conscious again so that you can feel your way through them again. And then ultimately automatize them again, this time legitimately, so that you can head toward this um, zombie-like state that Freud called nirvana. Um, There are many other implications for technique, which, as I said, over the last five years, I've found myself um, guided by this model, this unexpected and unwanted revision of basic theory. It's made sense of a lot of things. I've just told you it makes sense of um, uh, – there's a different way of thinking about what you're actually doing. Um, in terms of what the unconscious is and what your task is in relation to the unconscious, uh, that what the repressed is, to use the broadest term for it, um, is is, uh, uh, in, is is childish or infantile, in, um, li- illegitimate uh, uh, predictions, predictions, solutions to problems which are actually non-solutions. So it's no accident that uh, so many of these uh, repressed materials are conflicts, because. Conflicts exactly are things you can't solve. You know, I wonder, I hate my mother because she frustrates the shit out of me. I love my mother because she's my source of pleasure in life. How do you resolve these two things? So, these, uh, so uh, the unconscious is full of conflict uh, uh, for the same reason that um, the, the whole purpose of cognition is to try to solve problems. And those that you can't are the ones that you repress. But lastly, uh, I'm, I'm at the end of my time. Just to say that there are many other things that... Um, can be, re- that, that I found myself as a clinician uh, th- thinking in an entirely different way uh, in the, on the basis of this model. Like, for example, I say the patients come to us first and foremost with feelings. So you know, Freud says you must turn your unconscious towards the unconscious of the patient and then there's direct communication between two unconsciouses and spooky things like that. And, uh, and I think what's actually happening is something's perfectly conscious. You know, that the patient comes with feelings. You feel those feelings. This is countertransference. This is the basic sort of compass that we use in our psychoanalytical technique. It's not something unconscious. It's the very opposite. That, that you, that's why it's so evident uh, in the room. It's like yeah, this is, there's a, there, I'm picking up something here. I'm feeling something, but I don't know what it is. And then it's a matter of finding the content, the representational content, the the thoughts, fantasies, memories that that make sense of the feeling states which were conscious all along. And uh, so the analytical task, as I say, can be reconceptualized in all sorts of really fundamental ways in relation to very basic things that we've always known anyway, um, except that uh, it makes more sense and it fits with what we've learned um, from the neuroscientific point of view too. Um, well, I, since I have 30 seconds, I think I will just tell you something else. These are the things I didn't show you. Uh, this is a human being who's got no cortex, uh, who supposedly would have no consciousness. Yes, yeah, she is. When you put her baby sister on her lap, um, I'd say she's having a feeling. Uh, here's another one with no cortex, nothing at all, You know, full of consciousness, full of feeling. And uh, had I time, I would have told you something about this body swap illusion, which... Um, which uh, it's a really sobering sort of thought about how we, that this external body is something representational, something learnt. The, 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 the real basic subject of, of me is, is feeling. And then you have to learn in relation to these external object representations, one of which is, your, you know, as I say, the external surface of your own body and the image of your own body. This body swap illusion, it's a little experimental paradigm where you can completely, I mean, really simply and easily change somebody's perception of where their body is so that this guy ends up thinking that he's her. It's amazing. And the rubber hand illusion, maybe Katerina will talk about it later, it's the same sort of thing. Why I mention this, this incredible malleability of our representations, uh, even in relation to ourselves, which are first and foremost id's. And feelings. Secondarily, we learn about this thing called me, which is an idea, a representation. That these the separation between these things that we see clinically in these extreme experimental examples, but clinically in out-of-body experiences, and and also you know, primitive, um, 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 uh, uh, primitive uh, psychopathological situations where the patient feels a feeling, but they put the feeling in you. You know, so the feeling is there. But the patient has the wrong objects. That's where they locate the feeling is really what this is all about. And this kind of cognitive neuroscience stuff shows us how what otherwise looks like something really weird, this unconscious fantasy world of you know the internalized theater that Melanie Klein and her followers taught us about, you know, with all these weird things going on between different me's and different you know hers and so on. Call me a right wing neuroscientist, but I believe it. Thanks very much.
0: So, thank you very much, Mark. Absolutely fascinating and interesting. So, how long have we got for questions? Um? Uh, Half an hour. Excellent. Okay. So, this is your opportunity to uh, to ask Mark some difficult questions. Yes. Right. Uh, right at the back. Should we take do, two do or I three questions? Could you just ask one
2: question? Yeah. To start to be, could you just say a few things about the role of anxiety in the model? I mean, would anyone mind if?
1: Um, so uh, Ivan asked me to say something about anxiety in relation to what I've just said here. Um, I, I told you that those arrows um, which relate to basic instinctual mechanisms, and um, I, I, you know, I didn't go into them in any detail. Um, but, in, but uh, these are varieties. First of all, I told you down here, you have pleasure and unpleasure, which has got to do with the here and now state of my body then these are built-in predictions as to what you do. Um, you know, you, you can't learn everything from scratch. There are certain things which, have, which, which we know from, as I said, evolutionary learning. And these are varieties of pleasure and unpleasure in relation to primordial, what Beyond would have called preconception, sort of a, a, a kind of um, um, pre-representational representation, sort like a gap that just needs to have things slotted into it. So fear and rage, and um, attachment, and nurturance, and so on. These are these are these basic different different ways of, um, different qualities of, of feeling, different qualities of pleasure and unpleasure in relation to different types of primordial object relation that every organism is going to find itself in. Um, and within those systems, of which we know of seven, There are seven which are complex, instinctual, affective systems. There are many, many affects. In fact, maybe I can, sorry, I'm I'm, I'm probably over-elaborating the answer, but just to quickly say, there are three categories of affect. There are homeostatic affects, which have to do with, they're very simple things to do with the state of the body. You know, like the feeling of hunger versus the feeling of thirst. Um, they're, They're very simple things. We call them homeostatic affects. Then there's sensory affects, which are likewise very simple things, but they have to do with the external surface, like um surprise um or pain. You know, these are very simple reflexive and pain feels different from surprise feel and there's also and there's a little behavior that goes with each of them. Surprise, woo, you know, pain, ugh, disgust, blech. They're simple reflexes. But then in between those two surfaces, between the internal homeostatic mechanisms and the external sensory ones, there are these complicated um, what we call instincts. And each of them has an affect and a behavior that goes with them. Two of them are qualities of anxiety. So one of them is called fear anxiety. The other one is called panic anxiety. And I think it's important, it's again one of the reasons why it's worthwhile to bring our fields together is to learn that in the brain there are two different types of anxiety. It's not a a bad thing to know about. Um, Panic anxiety has to do with separation distress. Uh, All mammals in fact even birds have it. Um, Birds and mammals are the the creatures that have it because they They are dependent. Um, When born, they can't feed themselves, so they have to find somebody who will feed them, and then they need to latch onto that somebody. And then there's a feeling when you separate them from that somebody that should motivate them to reunite with that object. And that feeling is panic anxiety, separation distress. And uh, then there's a separate mechanism, which, as I said about, about cliff faces, a uh, trepidatious fear, which has to do with the with, uh, harm will come to me because of a predator or because of some other threat to life and limb. And that fear anxiety, the behavior isn't, mama, mama, you lost me. That's what the panic anxiety does. The fear anxiety, it's freezing or fleeing. And uh, so these are the in, inert, the, the inbuilt behavioral stereotypes and um, it's imp- so the, the important things to say are: oh, there's two types of anxiety. By the way, pharmacologically, you can treat them. The one with benzodiazepines is fear anxiety. The ones with uh, antidepressants, you, you treat panic anxiety, and that's interesting also because it has to do with the loss and separation and so on. Um, you could also map it onto other basic psychoanalytical discoveries. You could say fear anxiety is paranoid anxiety, and panic anxiety is depressive anxiety. Mm-hmm. You know, so all these things kind of make sense uh, and, and cast new light on each other. Um, but also just to make this last point, Ivan, is that it's important to recognize that these basic instinctual mechanisms are not in turn derived from some more fundamental instinctual drive. They are, each of them, built in self-standing um, um, tools for living. Uh, they're, not, they're not like you know Freud's early theory that the anxiety is like uh, uh, um, you know, wine turned to vinegar libido turned to anxiety it's, it doesn't work like that you know, there are mechanisms which are libidinal mechanisms and God knows they exist in the brain and then separately from that there are uh, anxiety mechanisms and one of them is like Fairbairn and Bowlby taught us you know, quite separate from libidinal um, mechanisms and, and likewise the fear anxiety ones quite separate and the two quite separate from each other
0: right. thank ok thank you very much so at the back and then here
3: hello yeah thanks Um, I understand what you're saying about what people bring to you say in analysis like the, the surface things, their problems, their feelings is really important and it's actually visible to you to work with but surely that you know there is at least we might not call it unconscious but there is this forgotten area forgotten things that come out so if we have dreams or hypnosis talking or or we have a drink or something more comes to the surface and that's why people seem to use things like writing or automatic processes so would you do you believe in all of that? You know, that, that there is something we don't know and then it, it actually emerges. That seems very common experience, doesn't it?
1: Yes, no, absolutely. Um, there's no question that there is such a thing as the unconscious. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I need to make this point as clearly as I can, you know that there, there is an unconscious and there yeah. is an id and they are two separate things.
2: Right, the id right. is
1: conscious and it's feelings. And the aim of cognition is to manage those feelings and ultimately, ideally, which never really happens, to, to, to get rid of them altogether, which is the death drive, incidentally, that's uh, which turns mm-hmm. out to be an ego mechanism. But the, um, the, 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 the unconscious is something derived from experience and something derived from the attempt to, to manage your feelings in the world.
3: Yeah. And yeah. the
1: ideas that are generated, the representations, through these encounters between feelings and the, and the world, You know, the plans of this is what I do. When that happens, I do this. This is how the world works. These are internalized predictive models, which Freud called the reality principle. These internalized models of what I do, the aim is to get them unconscious as quickly as possible. You know, because, as I said, you have very limited space for actually thinking about uh, problems. How do I do this? So, you know, you must use that wisely. So the unconscious is automatized solutions. Some of them are legitimate some of them are illegitimate. That's our unconscious. So, if what that means in practice is that your patient and your beloved self, you know, when faced with a situation that you that you uh, don't know how to deal with, uh, it, since childhood you didn't know how to deal with that. You you said, "Well, I deal with it like this. This is how it works," even though it actually doesn't work like that. So these are. False predictions. These are uh, these are wrong-headed ideas, frozen in time, and they will be endlessly repeated, because that's your automatized solution. When this happens, I do that. So that there you have our repetition compulsion. There you have the transference where everything is repeated, not only in transference but also in all the other phenomena that you speak of. Uh, so it's there, and it has it, it has um, effects, uh, and it ha- the effects that it has is absolutely stereotyped. Compulsive ways of doing things but just not knowing A, why you're doing it and B, it not actually being the right thing to do which is why there's the threat of the return of the repressed that is to say the affects remain because they're not being tamed and managed by those solutions. That's how I think it works. I, I, I yeah, don't think yeah. for one moment so those things don't exist. I think that's really, re-
3: really helpful. Thanks. Yeah.
1: Good. Yeah.
0: Thank uh, you. Here thank
1: please, Ivan. Can you put your
0: hand up? That's Yeah.
3: Uh, thank you. Um, How these, uh, for example, uh, you described, uh,
1: mentioned that there are seven instinctual systems, you know, which are basically systems in the brain which stimulate
2: they produce uh, specific affects and and actually action tendencies, Mm -hmm. you know. And how does that go together with uh, things in psychonetic
1: theory like dual instinct theory, where everything seems to be derived between two forces, you know, for good and for evil, because it seems that these seven systems are really self-standing, you know, and do you think they should affect basic psycholytic theory or not? Yes. Well, first of all, um, there are seven systems that we know about. There may be more. Um, and uh, definitely, as you put it now, uh, I agree with it. They're, these are self-standing systems um, which uh, do not map in any simple way onto Freudian dual instinct theory. Um, I have to remind us all that Freud himself was very uncertain about the classification of of instincts, and uh, he kept on saying we have to have some classification. But you know, we we, since biology can't give us answers to this, we have to you know come up with our own rough and ready uh, uh, sort of preliminary formulations. Built into that is remember Freud spoke of component instincts, so he recognised there were a great variety of instincts. He just uh, you know didn't know how to group them together. So, what I would say in terms of um, the seven instincts that we know about today is, first of all, this is incredibly valuable knowledge, very important for psychoanalysis to know what these basic motivational mechanisms are that are built into every human mind. It's also incidentally important for psychopharmacologists, but that's another story. And and when we, um, you know, the, the fact that these mechanisms are object related that they're meaning-generating, you know, necessitates a different sort of way of thinking about psychopharmacology also. But I think that you can group them, um, if you must. Uh, I mean, first recognize that they are independent. So, you know, you're doing, that's the empirical fact. Then you're doing a kind of philosophical job of categorizing them. You could say, well, these are varieties of pleasure-seeking, and these are varieties of unpleasure-avoiding. And I think in a very broad sense, you could say that was Freud's ultimate drive theory. Freud said you know, that there are all sorts of pleasure-seeking tendencies. These are life, the life drives. You know, uh, in other words, you know, they're saying something pretty bloody obvious, you know, which is that all of our, these instinctual mechanisms are designed to uh, help us to survive and reproduce, that is to say, to live. And then there's what he called the death drive, which are simply unpleasure-avoiding mechanisms. And if I may just add one little metapsychological point here, another uh, simple conceptual reformulation of Freud, which I think is really helpful. Freud thought that there was a pleasure-unpleasure series. It's one thing, one modality of consciousness that starts with unpleasure and ends in pleasure and everything in between. Uh, I I think that, uh, in fact, there are two mechanisms. The one is pleasure-seeking, and then there's another one, unpleasure-avoiding. They're not on a continuum, and that's what I've just said about the categorization of the instincts. But also each one of them, each one of these different um, um, uh, categories, each one of these different component instincts. You remember, in the middle, there is a feeling-free spot. That's the sweet spot. That's the homeostatic set point. We actually want no feeling. And then there are, you know, deviations from it in either direction are unpleasure. And deviations, uh, movements back toward the sweet spot are pleasure. You're not aiming for pleasure, 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 and endless pleasure. You know, what you're aiming the pleasure tells you you're heading toward where you want to be. Think about your own experience, sexually and, and, and culinary experience. You know, you don't just want more and more and more and more and more endlessly. Eventually it's like, okay, that works. Uh, thank you very much. And just to say quickly, it seems that unpleasure avoiding seems rather not like a death instinct, but rather a form of a life instinct. Yeah, I think that you can, the fact that you can reformulate the clinical phenomena in that way um, makes, you know, makes it all sound a little less uh, cosmological. Um, but I also think that the, the Freud's recognition that there's a seeking for nirvana, that this is beyond the pleasure principle, I think that that is something terribly important.
2: Yeah. My name's Gilbert Pugh. I wonder, without being controversial, why we need a location called the unconscious. Because after all, uh, our organism tries to avoid, and this is where Freud got it quite right, avoid uh, unpleasure and seek pleasure. Why is this not a a capacity of the the mind-brain, just as if you touch a hot stove, you don't think about it you don't even have second thoughts you don't have any thoughts uh, you withdraw as a reflex and I'm wondering whether the so-called unconscious I always use the term non-conscious I have to say because I've never seen any any reason for having a, a location and I suspect that um, very often the unconscious as Freud described is really a, a confusion with memory we're actually talking about memory of things in, in the past which come to us.
1: Well, I, I agree we're talking about memory when we talk about the unconscious. I think the unconscious is different from the non-conscious in the sense that a coma is different from an automatism. Um, but um, just to address the essence of your, uh, your point, uh, you, you, know, the, the, you said Freud you know, was right about pleasure-seeking and unpleasure-avoiding. I think the fact that we know now that there are varieties of pleasure-seeking, they're not just on a continuum, you know, there are different types of pleasure-seeking built into our minds. Um, and different types of unpleasure uh, avoiding built into our minds. These mechanisms to know their varieties and to know their qualities and to know what sorts of things trigger them and what sorts of feelings they give rise to and what sorts of interactions there is valuable knowledge. You know, so the more detail, the more content we have, the better. And the same applies to the unconscious. You know, so you can say, well, you know, it's just you know, it need, we don't need to think of it as a place. But uh, if we recognize now we know how this thing works because we've identified the place in the brain, the, the mechanisms that are at work here, we can test different uh, uh, hypotheses, we can come up with a more variegated, more sort of a comprehensive and detailed model of how this thing actually works which not only makes for consistency across disciplines. It's important to be able to integrate what cognitive scientists have learned about unconscious cognition with what we've learned, because you know ultimately there's only one mind. You, know, you can't have a mind for psychoanalysts and another one for cognitive scientists. <laughs> you know, so we have, to, we have to benefit from what each other have learned using our different models. And then we learn things like, to go back to the analogy you used about, about burning the fingers, that actually cognition is trying to get to a state where you don't have to even think about it. But unfortunately, there are things in life you do have to think about, and so you know, this is what cognition is for. It's like, shit, this happened. I don't have a solution for that. Now I've got to think about it so that I can get to a point where I don't have to think about it. And this is the aim, uh, as I say, of all learning. And knowing these sorts of things about how unconscious mental mechanisms work helps us to understand better what they are and then apply that knowledge clinically.
0: Okay, so we've got a lot more people wanting to ask us. You and then on.
3: Um, I've got got the microphone. Um, I suppose it must follow, mustn't it, from the the seven systems and how they learn from experience, that there's a kind of thinking that goes on in the id and that there's sort of a hierarchy of thinking. There is some which is more cognitive and some which is more instinctive, more... More like animals, really, who do learn a certain
1: way, don't they? So yes, uh, I would agree with you uh, 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 in, a, in, a, in a way, but I'd like to rather emphasise the way in which I would reformulate what you've said, because I think it makes for a, a conceptual clarity which is helpful. The id is everything that is inbuilt; it is it is not learnt from experience. It's, it's sort of the definition of id is what you are, what what comes with your Constitution, and that is basic feeling states and consciousness the, the you know the f- feelings of pleasure and unpleasure, being awake, being asleep. These basic sort of things which are just there, and also these instinctual stereotypes that are built into the brain. Like I use the example of fear of heights. There, you know, uh, cats, for example. Uh, you know, you you take one cat hair and you put it in the cage of a newborn rat. It will freeze. It doesn't have to learn anything about cats. It just knows. Innately, these are bad news. So there is a kind of cognition, if you will, if you want to call it that. I, I think of it more as a kind of proto-cognition, like Beyond's concept of, of preconceptions. I think that's a good way of thinking about it. There are sort of innate object relational tendencies. So it's not just raw feelings. It's raw feelings and certain built-in ways of managing feelings in relation to an imagined world. You know, That's it. But that's all built in. But because they're so rough and ready and so basic, and heaven knows there are more than seven problems in the world, mm-hmm. you know, so you, ne- you need then to elaborate on these systems. And the, the crucial issue here, which is why I'm, 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 I'm uh, belaboring this question of whether we should call it thinking or not, is I, I like Freud's definition of thinking, which is that it's not acting. It's, Freud calls it experimental action or virtual action it 's an imagining what might happen if I were to do this, and that is predicated on inhibition, on not acting. so Freud says thinking replaces instinct you know it 's different from instinct in that instinct there is as you said Gilbert no there 's no thinking required it's just like I, I withdraw my hand like, so instinct works like that it 's just when this happens, I do that i don 't even think about it thinking is the opposite thinking says don't do that uh, think about what might happen if you were to do that given the actual circumstances and everything you've learned about the world mm-hmm. then you select okay i'll do this uh, and that's free will you know that's that's what we call free will that's it's it's it's, it's uh, what uh, uh, benjamin libet uh, very used the felicitous term free will not you know that it's the it's the capacity to 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 not act on instinct and then to feed forward and imagine outcomes, which is what working memory does, and then select from the range of so the added flexibility um, and selectivity is an enormous advance over instinct.
0: So you wouldn't call it. Can, thin-
1: can, sorry, can I give because there's so many people want to speak. Just
0: on the other side, that... So just please notice, I'm at nice. At the, so, go I go to the back.
1: Sorry? So, it's nice thing about having a chair, a chairperson is he that can they be can nasty. be not nice and yeah, then exactly.
0: I can be nice. <laughs> I know. Very good. Splitting is excellent.
4: <laughs> well, hello. Thank you very much for, for really very thought provoking uh, presentation. Uh, um, my understanding, you're, what you're pro- proposing is that we accommodate and assimilate, um, new theories and new, new learnings and new practices from other, uh, sort of sciences. Given that, um, I think it links to the very first question I think this gentleman asked, what would you say the role of oxygen is in, uh, uh, between the hind brain and the forebrain? Oxygen? Yes, please. Yeah. Do you
1: mean oxytocin or oxygen? Oxygen, yeah. Well, oxygen is necessary for life at every single level, yeah. not only of the brain, but of the whole, but every cell of your body. Yeah. So um, I mean, there's nothing much to say psychologically about oxygen, except to say, in relation to Ivan's thought, and this is really more of a free association. Ivan's question about the, about fear, about anxiety, you know, that one of the ways you differentiate fear anxiety from panic anxiety is that panic anxiety comes with this air hunger mm. sort of thing, and air hunger can can evoke panic, and panic evokes air hunger. So there's the only psychological thing that comes to my mind about oxygen in particular uh, is in relation to that particular quality of anxiety. But I'm sure you have something else in it, mind that well, I'm not getting. The
4: reason why, because I, have, uh, I work both sides. I, I have gone to the other side partly. Mm-hmm. So I do treat anxiety symptoms, mm-hmm. and I've noticed in patients when they come, so just watching their sort of body and everything the way they are, they shallow breathe basically. You know, ah. and they hold the breath as we oh, okay. doing that. Like. So I'm kind of working or thinking about this theory: the fact that yeah, the forebrain needs a lot more oxygen than the hind because it comp- Well, it basically thinks very sophisticated problem-solving thoughts. So that's what where I'm coming from. Yeah. I watch this, and it's linked with the meditation. You know, the, yes, the, the, the mindfulness and compassion. so I know
1: very little about that, but the basic principles that. Um, I outlined earlier apply there too that in the when I said there are three categories of affect. You know, the, when you what you're talking about is a homeostatic affect. It's a basic body regulating. You know, there is a feeling called air hunger, uh, and there's a certain thing you do when you feel it, which is breathe. And you can try as hard as you like to not breathe. Eventually, the it will win. You know, um, so. Uh, but what, But the other principle that you're alluding to, which is that we can use ego mechanisms to regulate these things, to regulate affects, and that there's a great deal to be gained from such practices, of which psychoanalysis is a highly sophisticated, specialized form of, of regulating feelings, that is to say, meeting your needs in the world. Uh, certainly, I agree with it, those sorts of biofeedback things and meditation practices and so on, that I would think about them in terms of that same basic relationship of trying to find ways of managing automatic um, processes which are ultimately um, the the most basic stereotype solutions we have for problems which actually are very much more complicated and hence the the higher functions are there for a good reason. Please.
5: I hope that you will let me to extend the field of discussion just slightly wider. Um, Tolstoy defined art as, um, as activity which makes the uh, receiving audience feel. So the art is about feeling, mm-hmm. and it's not art unless it generates feelings. In this context, I sometimes wondered, how is it that poets have so often presented with a knowledge of human mind and human nature which um, in a corresponding way sciences would take centuries to discover <laughs> uh, would you agree that because art deals with feelings that 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 perhaps explains that Because
1: I think that, uh, I mean, as you said in your opening remarks, you're widening the field considerably. (laughs) um, Inviting speculation. uh, My my ability to answer it, you know, uh, is is, is commensurately, you know, if I was to properly answer that, we'd need another conference. But I'll just say one or two things. Yes, certainly I agree. Uh, I mean, just go back to Freud. Freud said that the poets had discovered all these things uh, intuitively, and now we're kind of grinding it all through the scientific mill, and this is psychoanalysis. And I would say what I'm doing is a further step in the same direction. It's like saying, yeah, well, the, the psychoanalytical formulations were also, to a certain extent, intuitive and poetic And, you know, that we are now able to get more precise um, formulations, which is not um, an ideology, but rather the more precise you are about your formulations, the more you can test them and the more ultimately, you know, you have secure knowledge about these things. But the fact that poets and artists were doing the same thing all along and before them, the... The various um, schools of wisdom and religion, and so on. You know, also we're doing the same thing. It's all about finding ideas which actually match the affective facts. And uh, when when it works, um, it's there's a there's a there's something approaching nirvana that comes from it. <laughs> so, did you want to ask a question?
0: One slightly sort of
4: summed up. Ah, okay. Which
0: is to do with the hierarchy of words always. Yes. Right, and okay, now, right, go on, yeah. Because yeah
4: you made it one more terribly personal. painful, this mm-hmm. act of drawing the words out. And it's something maybe that the art therapists ah. have cut right in and can get to the thing not in five sessions a week, but in whatever, through art.
1: Yes, Thank I think you. that that's an important point, you know, that it's wh- when we speak... When cognitive scientists speak of, you know, the the finding of algorithms that mm, that meet the problem, and you know, then you know, you automatize them, it leaves out of account, as I said, the whole twentieth century uh, of, of of cognitive science, but it left out the feelings, you know, and you you can make mistakes about how the thing works if you leave out the feelings. It's we don't want to have to think these things and feel them and recognize we haven't solved them and that we can't solve them and so on.
2: What do you think? And, I'm sure
1: uh, Sorry, sorry, but I, I, if we're going to
0: stick to time. You want to stick to yes, time? Yes, yeah. uh, Say one more, yeah. <laughs> yes,
6: my name is Amna. It was really fantastic. Uh, I'm trying to solve some puzzles, and uh, the line between psychology and mathematics is getting closer and closer. I can see the model. Uh, with reference to these pathological mechanisms that we learned, obviously, through life and we stick to it, you, you lovely explained through the projections and uh, okay. desire and so on. They do, oh, it's as a process, uh, because it doesn't happen overnight. So the process starts with internal conflict, obviously, which then leads on to external pro- conflict, which is the conflict between the individual mm-hmm and the society or the elements of society but what about the conflict itself between the uh, what is inputted into mass consciousness and what is the element of internal conflict uh, what i mean is the, the for instance indoctrination or any kind of imputation that we have in our mass consciousness which creates the, mass, the the consciousness itself which is higher than ours mm. what happens is it a union or a clash between these two conflicts <laughs> I'm getting really complicated there is okay. a shema there yeah. is uh, a schema, mathematical of, of schema. all these things yes. I think yeah how they can be imbalanced or uh, uh, regulated I I don't know what
1: it is about today's meeting but the questions have been completely uh, (laughs) (laughs) mind-bogglingly big Um, so again I can't do justice to such a big question in a few sentences but I will just touch on two aspects of what you're saying, um, the second being the mathematical one. The first one to do with the internal versus the external conflicts, I would put it the other way around to how you did. I don't think we start with internal conflicts and then externalize them. I think that, first of all, you know, there are there, there, there needs that need to be met in the world which conflicts with our needs. You know, the world isn't waiting to meet our needs, um, and everyone else... you know. Uh, 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 we are, we, we, we might be their lunch, you know, so it's, uh, it's as you try to meet your needs in the world that you come into conflict. The aim of cognition is to resolve those conflicts. But you can't. And so this is why you end up internalizing conflicts. That is to say, you don't have a solution, which is, this is what I do. You have a, this is what I, this is all I know. You know, and it's, you get stuck there. So I think it's an internalization of the inevitable insolubilities of trying to meet your needs in the world. As regards the mathematical point, there's a colleague of Katerina Fotopoulou who's going to be talking this afternoon at UCL, a computational neuroscientist called Carl Friston, F-R-I-S-T-O-N, Carl Friston, who works on this whole Bayesian predictive modeling thing. And uh, when you say that psychology is becoming um, more and more Mm -hmm. sort of... um, um, mathematically formalizable it, it, certainly when it comes to the kinds of things I've been talking about today the mathematical models that Carl Friston is generating of this sort of thing is entirely compelling and convincing mm-hmm. to me I'm,
0: gonna, I'm going to uh, give Katerina the um, right to ask a last question yeah, so yeah, just give her a smaller Mark <laughs> uh,
3: good uh, so it actually falls up what you just said about Carl but I just wonder whether Some people in psychoanalysis actually saw Freud's shift from the unconscious to the Eid as a way of indeed getting away of the unconscious as a system, as a topography, and realizing that consciousness and unconsciousness are processes rather than anywhere in the the system. So it is almost unfortunately that he still finds himself putting forward another topography. However... You are right that in his descriptions of the id, he insists that there is affective consciousness, and it's part of the id. So all I want to say is, uh, for me, humbly, another way of seeing this is perhaps that even though he doesn't complete the job and you seem to want to push us to do it, which is great, Freud starts seeing it this way already quite a lot in his writings. He he writes about the unconscious as no longer being just that. You know, he could have easily said there's consciousness in the id. He didn't. But it's described in in the id. And there are people, for example, in psychosomatics, um, Marilia, Eisenberger, etc., that follow that line and says, we shouldn't call them psychosomatics, we should call them somatopsychics, because you go from the body to constructing these abstract mental models. And that is, in fact, exactly what Fristern model described.
1: So I agree with you that Freud recognized um, what what could not be accommodated in his first topography uh, and the system unconscious, that there were things that he was recognizing about mental life which required a broader concept. And uh, the the movement away from that first topography with the the id concept was a massive advance, Um, and you can see why I think so, you know, because it it really does fit the bill in terms of a hell of a lot of how the thing seems to work. But I'm afraid Freud did still try to conflate this thing with the unconscious. And uh, that's what we all do, you know. I said earlier about how science really works, that, you know, you find something new and then you try and sort of somehow squeeze it into what you thought in the first place. And I think that that's what Freud did there. And I, I, I think we need to undo that, you know, We need because otherwise we get into endless um, errors. And uh, just to make the point that Freud did fudge it, uh, I'll show you uh, during the break, uh, Katerina, uh, there uh, uh, the, are the passages uh, where Freud actually says exactly this thing you've just said. He said, but hang on, this doesn't fit. And then he finds the most bizarre solutions. <laughs> like, for example, he says, well, the, se- the perceptual consciousness system must send down feelers, you know, and, uh, you know, uh, uh, ultimately it has to be derived from, you know, cortical processes. And so, you know, he, he although he recognized this wasn't fitting together, he came up with Weird and wonderful non solutions just as we all do in life.
0: (laughs) Okay, well it remains for me to say, Mark, thank you very much. It was very stimulating, very well put, and an excellent (laughs) question.